Welcome to Piedmont Arts. I'm Rachel Stewart. Composer, pianist, and social justice activist Margaret Bonds is one of the 20th century's more remarkable American artists, and yet it seems she's just now coming onto the radar of many music lovers. We have a perfect opportunity to learn more about this remarkable woman and her music the weekend of November 3rd through 5th, when Queen's University hosts a Margaret Bonds Symposium. Dr. John Michael Cooper, an expert on Bonds music, will give a couple of lectures that weekend. Uh, he is professor of music at Southwestern University. And there'll be some concerts too, one featuring Dr. Uh, Queen DeBose of UNC Charlotte, and another uh, presenting the Southeastern premiere of Bonds choral masterpiece, Credo. Doctors Cooper and DuBose are our guests on this episode of Piedmont Arts, as is Dr. Justin Smith, Director of Choral Activities at Queens, who had a lot to do with organizing the symposium. So thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Delighted. Great to be here. I'm going to start with you, uh, Justin Smith, uh, to tell us how this came about and why a Margaret Bond Symposium. Like most things, it's the confluence of a bunch of things that had to happen more or less one after the other. And it was kind of a, a happy um, marriage of a bunch of really fortuitous things in my professional life. The first thing is that actually um, my colleague who's also on here, uh, Dr. Cooper, I remember I was looking through YouTube and I came across him and a talk that he gave on Margaret Bonds and, and Black Feminism. And he started talking about this setting of a text that I had never heard of by um, Du Bois, uh, known as, which is a kind of sort of a prose poem that he wrote in 1906 called, called Credo. And then he starts referring to it as a, as this incredible, like lost American masterpiece. And I, and I thought, oh, there's no way he must, he's overstating this. He's, he, you know, he's speaking in hyperbole here. There's no, there's no way. I mean, come on. We know, we know all the masterpieces that have already, that have been written, right? Just started to investigate it. And over the last Six months since I saw that video, I've become totally convinced that this piece and this composer are really one of the great masters of, of the last century. And um, through a lot of societal realities, this is a voice that was silenced almost as, as immediately as these work, work, works were created, these works were forgotten. Um, and they are incredible masterpieces of expression, of text setting, of harmony, of color, of pianistic writing. They're wonderful, wonderful pieces. And they feel extremely contemporary in the way that they demand a future that is without racism and, and discrimination. And then at the same time, we brought on one of my colleagues who's not on this call, who but is another driving force behind this festival, um, Dr. Jennifer Piazza-Pick, who is our, our sequina, our uh, voice professor here down the road at Queens, who has done a ton of really impressive work in finding and amplifying the work of female composers, which for hundreds and hundreds of years has been uh, not a priority of our of our business. The combination of those two got both Jennifer and I really excited about this figure and about the, the mission and the importance of doing this work. And then luckily, Sequina and Michael made the great mistake of not saying no to us when we came asking them if they would participate in, in this festival. And um, it's been, probably a year that we've been working on this. So it's it's really exciting and, and surreal to see this only a couple of weeks away. And it's been exceptionally moving to see how the students, especially our students of color, have really reacted to this, the chance to sing this remarkable composer's work um, in a very, very powerful and, and very, very exciting way. 
it's really exciting. It's, it feels like cutting edge and really important work in a way that doing Mozart Requiem maybe ne isn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. In just a moment, Sequina, I'm going to ask you to talk about the music a little bit. But before uh, we do that, Michael, could you tell us a little bit about Margaret Bonds? Because, you know, as, as Justin has alluded to, and as I said earlier, she's not that well known or she's just now getting recognition that she probably deserved years ago. So the first thing I should note here is that we tend to think of Margaret Bonds as a rediscovery, but in a very real sense, in African-American circles, she has never been forgotten. Also beyond those circles, things such as her setting of he's got the whole world in his hand and uh, Troubled Water, the piano piece, right? Those are pieces that once they got out into the musical world were never silenced despite the political economy of music publishing, which refused to grant her much space, or in many cases, any space, because of her race and her sex. Go back to the example of he's got the whole world in his hand. There are other settings, other arrangements of that, but everyone always comes back to Margaret Bonds. It is the gold standard, and in this sense, Margaret Bonds' presence has never really left us. In that sense, what Dr. Smith is doing is something that is not at all a rediscovery of someone who is just now coming back into public life, but really a matter of recognition of a talent, a voice, and a vision that have been ignored, which is not quite the same thing. So let me just give you kind of an overview. People always say three things about Margaret Bonds. First thing they say is that Margaret Bonds was a social justice warrior. That is true but true in a different way and actually truer than people actually have ever realized. Second thing they always say is that Margaret Bonds was a close friend and collaborator of Langston Hughes from whom she drew much collaboration, much inspiration over the course of her career from 1936 or so until her death in 1972. We'll talk about that one in just a moment. The third thing they always say is that after Langston Hughes's death in 1967, Margaret Bonds moved to California with aspirations of becoming a film composer. And without Hughes's inspiration, she sort of slipped into a kind of rudderless existence and didn't do much of consequence during those last five years of her life. This is a very common narrative. And if you were to go into the web and look at the portrayal of Margaret Bond's life and work, this is what you find. I'll leave the teaser about the first of those points, the social justice warrior being even truer than we know and in different ways than we know for my Friday evening talk. But for those second two, I want to take it apart and tell you that they are a part of a way of telling the life of Margaret Bonds, which is consistent with the way that women's life stories have always been told in a fashion that props a woman up against a man, credits him with her inspiration, her guidance, her tutoring. And if he exits her life, she either collapses or finds another man. That's the way that stories of composers such as Fannie Mendelssohn Hansel, Clara Schumann, uh, Louise Ferranc, everyone, every woman's life has always been told that way. And that's the model for Margaret Bonds. When we start looking at documents of her life, the narrative itself, as it emerges from the thousands and thousands of music manuscripts, the letters, the programs, the things that other people said, and the press reports, that whole narrative collapses because what happens is that Margaret Bonds actually 
had much more agency in creating her life and did things for completely different reasons than that traditional narrative acknowledges. The simplest point about that is that Langston Hughes' inspiration is often credited as being the reason why she moved from her native Chicago to New York in 1939. It had nothing to do with it. Hughes was not in New York at that time, and he didn't find out that she was going to New York until several months after she was there. The reason why she went there was because she had decided, almost by accident, that she wanted to be a publishing composer, and New York was home to more music publishers than any other city in the United States. This is in the days before electronic communications. If you want to publish music, you need to be in New York. Margaret Bonds left everything that she had ever known and went there. That's one example. Additionally, when she uh, moved to Los Angeles, that also had nothing to do with Langston Hughes' death. He died in May of 1967. She had started planning to move to Los Angeles early in 1966. And the reason for that was because of the Watts riots. And Southern California had by this point become one of the major destinations of, of African-American pilgrimage because of the vibrant political culture, the political activism, and Margaret Bonds, after the Watts riots, which struck her deeply, we see from her letters, decided that that was where she needed to be. She needed to leave her comfort, her success in New York, and go out there to be a part of that moment, of that community. And it is telling that when she moved to Southern California, to Los Angeles, the second largest city in the country, right? Enormous. Where did she move? she moved into the heart of the Watts district with the idea of working at what was then and is still the nation's largest and most important federally funded inner city cultural center. Right? She wanted to teach the young uh, African-American and underserved students and be a part of that world in order to bring her vision of justice, of social activism to the world of music. And she did so. And during those last five years, she created a lot of fabulous, really important music. So I'm saying too much here, but, mm -hmm. uh, but those are just a couple of kind of bookends from this extraordinary career and the presence. And what happens if you set aside the familiar male sexist narrative and recognize Margaret Bond's activities on their own terms and her own voice. You really hear things and see things that otherwise you just don't see. All right, I will stop now. Thank you for that wonderful <laughs> question. Do we mention that Michael just finished a, the, 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 a large, large-scale book of, on, on, on Margaret Bonds? So does, he knows a little bit show? about this planning. Yes, yes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, no, thank you. That's a, a really good, I think, for people who don't know anything about her, that's a great introduction. And even for those of us who've known a little bit about her, you're right. That's not exactly the story you get when you look her up on the internet. So, Queen, I want to turn to you now because you're going to be performing a concert of her songs and, and you can fill us in on the rest of what you're doing. But talk to us a little bit about her music. You, as a musician yourself, you know, what do you enjoy about it? What's special about it? And what are you going to be singing when, when you are at the symposium? I've been singing Bonds' music since I was a high schooler. I really identify with her and her story. I was raised in the church. My mother was a musician, as her mother was a musician. Uh, we sang spirituals and, and, and gospel music in the choir and in my school choir. 
we would sing, um, he's got the whole world in his hands, that arrangement, of course, <laughs> it was very yeah. famous um, in those circles. And I really identify with what Michael was saying about the the Black community um, has always really known about Bonds' music and and held her in high regard, um, and especially concert artists and, and the choral music community, which has a really strong influence um, especially when you look at uh, historically black colleges and universities of which I am an alum. Uh, so when I was in high school, I remember our choir director who had a major influence on my life. Uh, she brought in a video of uh, Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman performing spirituals in concert. I saw Jesse Norman perform, You Can Tell the World which is a, a, a Margaret Bond's arrangement. And it's, oh my goodness, to this day, it's, <laughs> it's one of the most phenomenal performances of that piece. And I'm going to do my best <laughs> to interpret it on, on November 4th. But, you know, it just opened my mind as a young, as a young person to all the possibilities, not only for interpreting music and singing spirituals, but for a performance uh, career. I didn't know about professional opera singers who were black and so um, Mar uh, Margaret Bonds has really been a vehicle for careers for many professional artists, performing her music, interpreting her music, as, as with other composers, um, African-American composers who um, were able to work with those artists and, and write music specifically for those voices. So between both the artist and the composer, there is a symbiotic relationship there where we're advancing together and really able to honor um, this art form, the, the, the spiritual. It wasn't until later when I began uh, studying music and becoming a music teacher that I began to discover and explore her art song arrangements. And um, that has been really delightful for me to really dig into some of that contemporary work. Um, on uh, the performance I'll be performing I Know My Mind, Sonnet, I Know My Mind, which is a very interesting setting of Edna St. Vincent Millay's poetry. Uh, so I, I love the fact that Bonds took the, the work of a woman poet and said it as well. So we have um, some wonderful things in store and it's an honor for me to be a vessel for this music. It's just had a very large influence on me in my life and my personal journey. When you are in your doing your performance, will there be other performers as well? Yes, mm -hmm. I'm only doing a couple songs. <laughs> okay, mostly mostly um, artists from Queens University. Um, I know Jennifer Piazza Pick will be on that performance as well. Um, Justin, you may want to give a rundown. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yeah. we're very we're very excited to show off um, our some of our music and music therapy majors who are vocal primaries who have been working on this rap. Uh, all semester. And so uh, this will be a, a, a big deal for them and a great chance to show off our wonderful artistry that we have among our um, amongst our undergrads here. I wonder which one of you um, could talk a little bit about Credo and tell us what it is, because this is going to be the Southeastern premiere of this work. Yeah, I don't know when it was written. It's certainly taken a long time for it to have a Southeastern premiere, obviously. <laughs> but which yep. one of you wants to tell us a little bit about that. How about if I say a couple of words? 
So W.E.B. Du Bois wrote this in 1904 first and revised it as the preface to his 1920 autobiography, Dark Water. Very important manifesto of a sort that truly became uh, a sacred text in the African-American communities, especially in the United States, in that turbulent uh, middle part of the 20th century, the part that gave rise to the civil rights movement, which made such important strides towards the equality that we still have never seen. It begins with the words, I believe in God who made of one blood all races that on the earth do dwell. That is such a powerful and empowering statement of vision. Margaret Bonds knew this text, we can tell from her setting, from Darkwater, from that autobiography of W.E.B. Du Bois, which means that she would have taken the text from, taken her inspiration, not only from the words of the credo itself, but from the other things that Du Bois talks about in that powerful autobiography. She finally decided in 1964 that she was going to set it to music, began composing it in 1965, and first got it performed at an all bonds concert in washington dc in 1967 very important washington dc 1967 think about where we are in the civil rights movement at that particular point it's a manifesto of great power and beauty and in that same year her friend and colleague uh the great choral conductor albert mcneil gave a performance of it in its orchestral version in San Francisco. So two performances in her lifetime. The reason why I'm telling you these things is because Margaret Bonds had approached Sam Fox Music, which was at that point the second largest music publisher in the United States, and which had published her 1960 cantata, The Ballad of the Brown King, about publishing Credo. And they were excited about it, but they insisted that in order for them to do so, she would have to change the words, which would be blasphemous. And they insisted that she change them. They compelled her to ask W.E.B. Du Bois's widow for permission to change the words. And she wrote this letter, which is so obviously uncomfortable asking about it. And W.E.B. Du Bois's widow, Shirley Graham Du Bois, responded, absolutely not. To do this would be to cut the heart out of the cradle. Margaret Bonds then dropped the project of publishing Cradle and she set about getting it performed instead. If you won't print my music, I'll bring it to life in performance. And she did. She got those two performances to happen. 1971, she reapproached Sam Fox, and they still refused. And so she got it onto the performance docket of the Los Angeles Philharmonic with Zubin Mehta. That performance happened one month after her death. So that's an important chronology because it shows, I think, her resilience in when she was faced with silencing from the world of printed and published music on which classical musicians are utterly dependent. She said, all right, we'll work in manuscript and we'll get it performed. My voice will not be silenced. Very important point. It tells us a lot about her. But it has been published since. It has been published. It was finally published in 2020 by Hildegard Publishing Company, which is a very fine company that's devoted exclusively to music by women composers. I understand that there has been an explosion of requests, not only for the orchestral materials, which come from Theodore Presser, but also for the piano vocal scores. Uh, it's being performed everywhere now, after half a century of silence. Wow. So Queen's University yep. has, yes. has the, uh, the first performance I, in the Southeast. I, 
I think that uh, that story that Michael tells is um, gives you a sense of the character of this woman, um, that she would rather stick to the artistic and, and civil rights principles of the text rather than the, the royalties and the renown that publishing this work would certainly have brought, right? Because it's a, it's a, it's a piece that I think would have done very well for her, you know, financially in terms of reputation. Um, yes. But she said no. Um, and that that's deeply impressive in 2023, let alone two generations ago. So I've been completely obsessed with this piece. Um, I, I really believe it is one of the great American works of the last century, musical or otherwise. Um, I gave the Northwestern premiere with my professional group on the West Coast about a year ago. We recorded it and just shameless plug that record that recording is coming out uh, this fall from Central Records. So that will be the premiere recording of the original version for piano and, and singers. And then we're going to give the what I believe and Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the Southeastern premiere. Maybe. Yes, he's nodding. OK, he's nodding. Good. Because I've told yes. a lot of people that it is, so I'm glad to hear you say <laughs> say that. We're going to give the premiere of that, and then literally the day after this concert, when Michael and Sequina go on, go home to their other lives, we're going to take my audition choir on the road to Atlanta and perform this for the national conference of the National Collegiate Choral Organization, which is one of our one of our professional organizations on thir on the Thursday morning afterwards. So it's a heck of a piece. It's interesting to note that the title of this piece which is Credo, which is a very self-consciously white Christian way of couching these demands for, for racial equality. And I think that in some respects, that's what Du Bois was after, is aware, fully aware that it was 1906 when he was writing, um, how can I make white folks as comfortable as possible with these demands that were going to be quite difficult for them? And so the work very much follows the structure of the creed. Every phrase starts with credo, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I think the strategy there was to make it more palatable to his audience, um, especially to sort of white Christians by couching in in a language that they can understand. And Bonds does the, a very similar thing with the music, I think. It's a totally artistic, incredibly seamless sort of melding of what we would consider sort of white Western European traditional styles and African-American styles. It's not cut and paste where you can kind of see the stitches, right? It's, it's beautifully integrated into this work where white and black musical styles and white and black cultures have a chance to dialogue and to understand and to um, engage with one another. And out of that is created this exceptionally dramatic piece. It has a narrative structure to it in a, in a way where it kind of moves from this very strong, very sort of muscular pronouncement of demand for equality and the idea that equality is not only a good thing that we ought, ought to all strive for, but something that's mandated by God. And it moves through these various phases and it ends with this sort of the second to last movement ends with this kind of angel chorus, right? The, the, the words drop away and the chorus is just floating on these oohs and ahs as though we've sort of found something that is a better world. But then there's one more movement that has these sort of brings back the very dramatic, very rhythmic, very muscular pronouncements of the first movement, but it doesn't end on a major triad. It ends on the voices in a very hollow open fifth, something that in the Western 
modern canon sounds incomplete, sounds not finished yet. Uh, there's and there's this wonderful sense by the end that we've gotten somewhere, but there is still uh, incredible amounts of work to do. So I, I just find it a beautiful testament to how music can bring together people who, who are able to have a dialogue through, through our art form. But it's also realistic at the end. It's, it's, it's saying we have not we have not reached Eden here. We have not reached a post-racial society. There's still work to be done. And so um, it's, it's just a, a, it's just a powerful, a powerful thing. We are just about out of time. Michael, I can see that you want to say something. And Sequina, if you wanted to add something to that, I wanted to give you an opportunity also. I want to say that this is not just the Southeastern premiere. This isn't something that's talked about. Many people don't know it. But Margaret Bond's roots in the United States were from North Carolina. So there is a particular poetry to this Southeastern premiere taking place in North Carolina. She toured North Carolina several times over the course of her career, but she said, my people are from North Carolina. She was talking about the food at that point. But uh, that applies <laughs> also to... So anyway, I just thought it, it's significant in a very beautiful way biographically for her. Nice. Right. To Queen of. I don't know. I was just going to say um, my research area is uh, focused on hybrid hybrid works that fuse elements of classical music with elements of um, other musical styles, especially um, music of the African-American diaspora. And I love being able to bring much of my informal training and experiences and formal training and experiences to the works that I get to perform. And this is one where the soprano solo in, in Credo is a lot of fun because there are so many things that just remind me of the Black church that bring spiritual elements in, but I can also, you know, apply very legato lyrical singing too. So it's a lot of fun to sing and very meaningful, meaningful for me. And let me just say that you really haven't lived until you've heard Sequina sing the second movement of the Bond's Crate. It will literally knock your socks off. It is stunning. Oh, thank you. She's an good amazing too. singer. Yes. <laughs> well, you all, thank you so much for your time. We are out of time, but I, but I do want to thank you. It's been an interesting conversation. I've loved learning more myself about Margaret Bonds. I've been speaking with Dr. John Michael Cooper, who is a professor of music at Southwestern University and uh, has written extensively about Margaret Bonds. Also, I've been talking to Dr. Sequina DuBose from UNC Charlotte, who is a wonderful singer and will be performing as part of the uh, Margaret Bonds Symposium. And also Dr. Justin Smith, director of choral activities at Queens University and one of the organizers of the Margaret Bonds Symposium. The symposium runs the weekend of, let's see, the third, fourth, and fifth, correct? At yes, Queens. that's correct. Thank you all for your time. And uh, for Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart. <laughs>